We are nearing the end of 1 Timothy. Today I'm going to read from chapter 6, verses 12 through 16. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 12 through 16. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we consider this portion, give us minds to think, ears to hear, not just what I say, but what you're saying to us. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. In verses 12 to 14, there are three exhortations concerning living a godly life. The first two are found in verse 12, and the third is found in verse 14. And they are as follows. One, fight the good fight of faith. Second, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And third, keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. This does not mean that the information found around these three exhortations is unimportant, but to get a clear picture of what the scripture is saying to us in verses 12 through 16, I think it is important for us to isolate these three exhortations and deal with them as if they were a unified whole, and then come back to the information that's packed in around them. So the first one is, fight the good fight of faith. To fight the good fight of faith is not to enter a single battle, but to engage yourself in a prolonged war made up of many battles. It is to continue fighting the good fight of faith until the war is ended. And if you're like me, and hopefully you're far better, then the war is probably going to last until you die. However, in fighting this good fight of faith, we're not being exhorted to fight for the faith, that is, for our religious beliefs or the freedom of religion, but rather to fight to live a godly, Christ-like life. And as Christians down through the ages have learned, to go from unbelief in God and from being a self-centered sinner to trusting God and making a deliberate, planned, and serious-minded effort to become a godly, mature Christian, this requires the kind of fighting that is prolonged, 
definitely difficult and at times tiring. You may be wondering why this fight is so challenging. You know, why doesn't God just change us? Why is it this hard? But for me, the better question is, who are we fighting? Who are we fighting that makes it so difficult, so tiring, so prolonged? And the answer, first and foremost, is we are fighting ourselves. We often think the biggest battle is against the devil or the world, but the reality is the biggest, most powerful battle is against yourself. John Climacus, a believer, I believe in the third century, wrote these words, If you rule yourself, you are every much a king as anyone who has ruled a nation. And I think that if we all consider our history, we know how challenging it is to rule ourselves. We are fighting what the Bible calls our old self, or our flesh, or the old leaven. Theologians refer to this as our old nature or our sin nature. And those are all great phrases. I am not diminishing the worth of any of them. But for me, it has been helpful to refer to myself, my old self, my flesh, my old nature as our ungodly, self-serving, sinful and foolish beliefs, values, fears, inclinations, desires, expectations, and habits that pull us or push us away from God and godliness. I won't say much about that list, but I do think all of us know what it means to be self-serving, to look out for our own interests first and foremost, as if we are the most important. That's part of the old nature. I think at least some of us know what it is to have foolish beliefs and worthless values. Some of us understand what it means to be driven by our fears, not in a godly direction, but away from God. For those who have really thought this out, I think we understand what it is to be self-protective as we work our way through life and how that self-protection most often is selfishly driven and hence becomes destructive not only to our own character and our own mindset but to our relationships. first and foremost battle that we fight, the thing that makes this change process so difficult, so tiring, and so prolonged is because we're fighting ourselves. But fighting our own old self is only half of what is required when going into this war with ourselves. The other half is putting on what the Bible calls the new self, or the renewed mind, or the 
being conformed to the image of Christ or walking by the Spirit. By the way, Galatians 5, 16 and 17 are two verses that we would all be wise to memorize and to ponder. Theologians refer to this as the new nature or our God nature. Peter refers to it as the divine nature. It is my experience that the fighting required to put off our old nature and put on Christ-likeness is not won in a single battle. Nor are you able to change your whole old nature into Christ-likeness all at once. Rather, it's an all-out prolonged war with many battles, some of which you will lose. And part of the many battles is as you defeat one area of old nature in your life and replace it with Christ-likeness, you become aware of another area that you may not have even been aware of before. That's the old nature and has to be put out and Christ-likeness has to be put in its place. If you persevere to the end, however... Winning will increase and losing will decrease until you've gained a new way of living in whatever specific area it is that you've been dealing with. The language I've used with myself is you've become a new creature in Christ Jesus in that area. In your whole life, I doubt it. But in that area you have, and then you can take on the next area and the next area and the next area. Though fighting with ourselves to put off our old nature and put on Christ-likeness is the hardest war any of us will face in this life. We are not our only enemy. We are in a constant war with the devil who tempts us and with the world, a world which continues to pressure us to conform to its way of thinking and living. The devil's persistence in tempting us and turning us against God, if you want to see how persistent he is, just read these words in Luke chapter 4, verse 13. And these words come at the end of the three temptations of Christ in the wilderness. Uh, and these are the words that Luke wrote. When the devil had finished every temptation of Jesus, he left him until an opportune or advantageous time. A time of weakness. The three temptations of Christ in the wilderness dealt with potential weaknesses. Hunger. The need for notoriety, to be well thought of, to be looked on as important, and the need to rule the world. But knowing that to get there, it would require dying. He will wait for a moment of weakness in us. And when that moment comes, he is there. C.S. Lewis may be correct. He's got all these co-workers. I don't doubt that. Someone will be there on his behalf in our weaker moments to tempt us. The exhortation to turn away from being conformed to this world and instead be transformed by the renewing of our mind 
from Romans chapter 12, verse 2, simply confirms how threatening the world and its ways are to spiritual well-being. I may just quote that verse to you because it says something really significant. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove, you may verify, you may validate, you may prove that the will of God is good and acceptable and perfect. What does the world want us to believe? What does the devil want us to believe? That the way of God, the will of God is not so good. It's not so acceptable. It's not so perfect. Isn't that why we go our old sinful way? We're not doing what is sinful and wrong because we think it's wrong or because we think it's horrible, awful, and terrible. It's because it does something for us that we want done for us. It's an advantage to us. Well... If we will actually work towards having a transformed mind, we discover, we discover that the will of God is actually good. It's actually acceptable. It's worth taking hold of. It is perfect. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 to 17, Paul describes the war that we face with the devil and the world and what we need to do to win Battle after battle. Remember, it's, a battle is a one-time thing. A war is a many battles strung together. So here's Ephesians 6, starting at verse 11. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. You see, God is our source of power. Self-help is a great idea, and there, it can go a certain distance in helping us change. But the reality is we must have God as our source of power if we are going to be persistently and victoriously changed. He has to be our source of power. So be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And then it says, put on the full armor of God, not some of his armor, not a piece here, a piece there, put it on today, but not tomorrow. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. What are his schemes? Those are his ideas, his wiles, his ways that he's working out to try and tempt us. Those are not his temptations. He's got schemes. I sold cars for a year and several months and there are certain schemes to being a good salesman. Techniques, we call them, because the word scheme is too negative. Well, the devil's got his techniques. Don't think he doesn't. He's not sitting around just waiting to tempt you with the same old temptation. He's thinking of ways to get through what he has to do to break through to you and get you to do what he wants. So we need to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. With what? With the armor of God. God is our protection. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Verse 13, Therefore, take up, same idea, the full armor of God, 
so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Now here's an important truth. Without any question, God is our source of power. God is our source of protection. But we are the ones who have to face the enemy. And if we don't have on all the armor, it's pretty easy to get wounded. Verse 14, Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows. That's not the schemes, that's the temptations. The the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. That portion of scripture is well worth considering more than once. To just get a picture of what God is calling us to do, trusting him and acting ourselves in order to put off the old and put on the new. There is no doubt that we face a triple threat when fighting the good fight of faith. We face our old self, we face the devil, we face the world. And this is why, this triple threat is why we must continue fighting day after day Not just one battle, but battle after battle until victory is won and we become new creatures in Christ Jesus. I do want to remind you once again, I've reminded you of this before and we've already talked about it some today, but let me just say this once again. Even though you must do the fighting, We see from the word of God that you are not fighting alone. So consider this list. God is with you. God empowers you. God helps you. He has given you his Holy Spirit to lead you, guide you, strengthen you, teach you and enlighten you so that you can understand and apply his word in practical ways. God protects you from being tempted beyond your ability to resist. God has given you the living word which he inspired so that it can teach you, reprove you, correct you, and train you in righteousness so that you can be adequate and equipped to live a godly life. And God has given you the body of Christ, fellow believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, to encourage and support you in fighting the good fight of faith. So yes, you are in a prolonged and difficult war, but you have God with you, in you, and God for you. So that just like Israel going in and taking the promised land, you do not have to lose a single battle. Do you believe that? You don't have to lose a single battle. Israel never had to lose a battle when they went into the promised land. Not because they were so great. Yes, they had to put on their battle gear. They had to make their battle plans. They had to go out and fight. But they never had to lose a battle because of God. God was with them. 
God was fighting with them. God was going before them. God was coming up behind them. God was in them. God was definitely with them. You may get wounded. That's a real possibility. But the reality is the only way you can lose a battle is to either give up or take a break or rejoin the enemy for a time. The second exhortation is take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. To take hold of eternal life is to keep a firm grip on it so that it cannot slip out of your grasp. And probably the most effective way to keep a firm grip on eternal life is to continue fighting the good fight of faith. That is, to continue putting off parts of your old sin nature and putting Christ-likeness on in their place as you pursue godliness and becoming a mature Christian. The reality is, you won't lose your grip on eternal life and become like the dog who returns to eating its vomit. That's the very thing that made the dog sick. Or like the pig who returns to rolling in the mud. That's the very thing that made the pig dirty. You won't lose your grip on eternal life if you are focused on fighting the good fight of faith. This does not guarantee you won't fall or fail for a moment or longer. But you cannot remain a partner to sin for long if your intention and plan and focus is on putting off whatever is part of your old nature and still needs putting off and putting Christ-likeness in its place. I am very grateful for how far God has brought me. And I'm very grateful for what I have learned and the changes that have taken place in my life. Yet just this past week, I had to ask Barbie to forgive me because I was doing something I should not have been doing. She didn't point it out. I realized it. I realized it because my goal is to live a godly life. And the same will be true for you. If you're committed to living a godly life, your conscience, the Holy Spirit the truth of God's word, what you've learned, these things will convict you. And you'll see it. Hopefully you'll do the right thing in response to it. This brings us to our third exhortation, which tells us how far we are to go in fleeing what is evil and pursuing what is good. And this third exhortation is, keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, admittedly, there is no clear indication what the phrase, keep the commandment, is referring to. However, as I've encouraged us to do, we want to consider the context when we're trying to figure out what's being said. And based on the context, it's reasonable to conclude that the commandment being referred to, the commandment that we are to keep is directly related to fighting the good fight of faith and keeping a firm grip on eternal life. So that at least points us in a direction. And what is clear in this statement is that we are to keep the commandment without stain or reproach 
until the return of Jesus Christ. In other words, we are to faithfully continue fighting and keeping a firm grip on eternal life until we either die or Christ returns. Bear in mind that the earliest church expected Christ's return at any moment. And we are exhorted to expect it at any moment. They fully expected that to happen. And I would think that's why Paul said, until Christ returns. Um, To keep the commandment without stain is to keep it without defect. To keep it without any imperfection. To keep it without any deficiency in word or deed. I put in there in word or deed because it is easy to fail in either of those places. To say what we shouldn't say. To do what we shouldn't do. To keep the commandment without reproach means having nothing known or obvious or apparent about us that can be rightfully condemned or shown to be ungodly. That's a challenge too, isn't it? Keeping these two exhortations without stain or without reproach may sound impossible, especially since we're still fighting against ourselves. So this is my solution to that. It is possible to keep the commandment without stain or reproach if we will properly respond to failure when we fail. You got that picture? For example, upon realizing we have failed by doing something selfish or sinful or prideful, we can confess our failure, seek forgiveness, make right the wrong we have done, and get back on track in keeping the commandment without stain or reproach. You see, you've removed the stain, you removed the reproach by dealing properly with your failure. Does that mean you didn't fail? No, you failed. But what bothers us the most about other people's failings? Isn't it the fact that they don't do anything to change it? They don't admit it? They don't seek to correct it? We just have to live with it? We are believers. We belong to God. We may not be able to live this life perfectly, but we can amend our failures in a way that serves the other person that we've sinned against, serves God who we've sinned against, and puts us back on track. In my opinion, none of us can do any better than this. We ought to keep growing in godliness so that we fail less and less. That should be our intention. And we ought to try our best to live as perfectly as we can, just as Jesus did. He lived the perfect life. And yet we need to acknowledge that we may still fail here and there. And the solution is to deal with our failure in a way that shows our sincerity in living a godly life as perfectly as is humanly possible. There are two other scriptures that affirm the extent to which we are to keep the commandment, and I want to read them to you. First Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 16. 
And here's what is written there. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance before you came to faith in Christ. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves. And this next phrase is a phrase that's very meaningful to me because it shows me how far I need to go. Be holy yourselves in all your behavior. In all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. It's fairly easy to be holy in a small area. It's more difficult to be holy in more areas. It is genuinely challenging to be holy in all our behavior. But that's what we are called to do. It's possible. We can head in that direction and make great progress in this life. And we ought. The second scripture I want to read is from Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age looking for the blessed hope in the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from what? Every lawless deed. Every. Not most, but every. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession. What? Zealous for good deeds. That shows us how far we want to go. In summary, God's word exhorts us to fight the good fight of faith, to keep a firm grip on eternal life, to live a godly life to the end of our days on the earth, and to live this life in a way that is free of defect or deficiency and free of anything that can be rightfully condemned as ungodly. Is this impossible? No. Why not? Because God makes it possible just as he made it possible for the Israelites to clear the promised land of its sinful inhabitants. But this process of growth comes with ongoing challenges, hard work, hard-fought battles, some failures along the way, and the need to persevere to the end in order to gain the victory. In between and surrounding these three exhortations, and if there was more time, we could say a lot more about these phrases that are in between. Paul points out some marvelous and faith-encouraging truths about God and Jesus Christ. And here's the list. Let me just give you the list. God gives life to all things. Christ Jesus, who showed us we can live a godly life even in the face of injustice, cruelty, and pain, testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. God will bring about Jesus appearing at the proper time. If you want a, just a quick short study, you could look up proper time in the scriptures. There's some interesting statements about that. Fourth, God is the blessed and only sovereign. He is the only one in total control. He is the only one who is ruler over all that is. 
He is the blessed and only sovereign. And as such, he is the king of kings and lord of lords. In other words, if you had a nation made up of kings and lords, he would be at the top. He's the ruler over them. God alone possesses immortality. The unique thing about God is that he has no beginning, no end. This is beyond my ability to comprehend. I can think of no end because I can look in that direction and, and see that it has no end to it. But I have an impossible time looking back this way and seeing that there is no beginning. Everything I know has had a beginning. God has no beginning. How that is, I have no clue. But he alone possesses immortality. Not only does he have no beginning and no end, we only have immortality because it's been given to us. We do not possess it. It is not ours naturally. It is ours because it's been granted to us. And it's only been granted in one direction. We have to be born in order to never die. God alone possesses immortality. Seven, God dwells in unapproachable light. I believe the idea here is that he is so holy and we are so not holy, we are so unholy that we cannot see. Our eyes can't handle the brightness of that holiness. Unapproachable light is just overwhelming. I don't know if you've thought about that very much, but that is an idea worth thinking about, that God is that holy. It's one of the thoughts that helps me realize how unholy I am. Unapproachable light. It's as if his holiness is so bright, I can't get close to it. And the last one is, no man has seen or can see God. It's an interesting statement. Exodus 33:20, God himself said to Moses, "You cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live." So God himself made this statement. This didn't just show up in the New Testament by itself. But Jesus said something that to me is astounding. "Blessed are the pure in heart." For they shall see God. I don't think it means we can see him as if we could see his form. The best I've understood it, best my experience has been, is that you see him as if he were really there, even though you can't see him or touch him. But you know him, and you know that presence, and you interact with it as if it is as real as my wife is real to me. No man has seen God, and yet Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Paul ends this section with these words, To God and our Lord Jesus Christ be honor and eternal dominion, eternal rule, eternal authority, eternal power over everything. Amen.